Well, I grew up in the desert, which means that it was only two years ago that my kids first saw the ocean. And I kind of felt like a horrible dad because my oldest was seven. Uh, he had no idea what the ocean was and never seen it. And I felt like we should probably make this happen. But in Arizona, uh, we don't have uh, any oceans nearby. And so it's a little, little trickier. Uh, so I remember two years ago, we were like, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to take the kids out to the beach. We went to California. We're going to do the whole thing. And I remember trying to describe to our children uh, what the ocean was like. And trying to describe, you know, uh, the, the, the sounds and the smells and the experience that, that, you would, that you'd have. And, and our kids are just processing this. They're taking it in, you know, and then they had some questions. So, Dad, is, is the sand like the sand at the playground at, at my school? No, it's not like that kind of sand. It's different sand. Okay, is the water like the water at a pool? No, it's totally different, you know. And I realized how hard it was for them to conceptually grasp what I was saying, they had a basic understanding, but they didn't, under, they didn't, they didn't have the experience. And so finally we get there, and, and so I remember the first day we get to the beach, and, and it's like, all right, kids, go play. And just their eyes getting big, like, whoa. And then afterward, I remember asking our oldest, hey, what did you think? And he's like, dad, that was way better than you described it. I remember thinking like, awesome. And, and I want life to be like that, where someone describes it, you experience it, and you go, oh, that was way better. But more importantly, I hope that has been your experience with Jesus, that you've heard about him, you've read about him, but as you see him, as you experience him, you go, oh, he is way better than I imagined. That, that has been my story. I've, I've grown up in the church. I've heard about Jesus as long as I can remember. And I would tell you that every year that goes by, I have that feeling with him of you are better than I even imagined. And we're gonna spend the next six weeks talking about that. And I hope each week you walk away and go, Jesus, you are better than I even imagined. You are, you are more amazing than I had any idea about. And so we're beginning this series we're calling Pixelated. Now you may not know what is pixelated. That's a kind of a weird word. Here's the definition and then I'll kind of elaborate on it. Pixelated means this, an image on a computer or television screen made up of a small number of large pixels that produce a picture which is not clear or sharp. It often happens when you're really close to something or if you zoom in on something, all of a sudden you go, it looks Pixelated. I'm not quite sure. You know, it's, it's kind of blown up or it's zoomed in. And it's usually because you're too close, you have to take a step back. Let me illustrate how this works. I'm going to show you three different famous paintings. We're going to pixelate them for you. And you got to figure out how long it takes you to see what you're looking at. And again, you'll, you'll understand this idea. So here's the first one. Which painting is this? Some of you have got it. All right, let's go, let's go a little zoomed out. Gets a little easier, right? The Mona Lisa. And so again, that's the idea of it's pixelated. You're, you're getting it into focus. You go, oh, now I can see it. All right, here's another one. It's a little harder. Which one is this? Just start shouting famous paintings and you're bound to get it. You know what I mean? All right, let's zoom out a little bit. The Scream. Uh, some of you have seen this painting. Uh, there you go. Oh, now I get it. All right, one more. Dang, that's impressive. It's Starry Night. We'll just get to the punchline. So let's zoom out. You guys figured that. I don't know. I think you're on to my game here. You're just, you're figuring it out. All right, cool. Uh, so we're in journals, uh, week one. Uh, if you have a new journal, hopefully you got a brand new series journal. I encourage you to get that out. Uh, this is your journal for the whole series for the next six weeks. Keep this, write your name in it. Uh, keep it you know, with you, bring it back each week. Write down the notes of what God is teaching you as we explore the scriptures 
together. And then this is something you can reference back to later. You go, oh, I remember we talked about that. And, and you can go back to your notes and have them all in a place uh, that's worth saving. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, also, if you've got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, this one's super easy. You've got a physical Bible with you. Go all the way to the beginning. You're going to know the very first book, Genesis 11. If you've got a Bible app on a device, uh, you just scroll to that and uh, you can get your spot there. And we're going to be in Genesis 11 in just a moment. One thing I do want to tell you is pretty cool. Uh, we're we're going to do something new. Uh, so if you have children in our, in our ministries, you have uh, kids in the kids ministry or the student ministry, uh, we are all as a church going through this series together, which means your kids today are learning the same story that we're learning Hopefully not as deep as I'm going to take you, but who knows? You know, maybe, maybe they are. Uh, but we're going to do the same kind of story, and that's the, to empower you as a family. When you get in the car today, when you're having lunch, when you're having dinner, to talk about what are you seeing about Jesus. And, and as a family, discuss it together. Here's the reality. If you want to raise godly kids, our children's ministry can't do it. Our, our student ministry can't do it. You have to do it. But we will come alongside of you. We will empower you. We will equip you. Uh, we will encourage you. And that is a way we want to do that for you, to give you something as a family to discuss these ideas together and, and each of you share what you learned. And so I encourage you, take advantage of that. Engage your kids in a conversation uh, if you have kids in those ministries. Here's the idea I, I like to submit, that I think life is pixelated for us. Uh, we are so close to things that, that we often don't know what we're looking at. And if you look at a, a, a pixel, it has no meaning without context. You have to see the other pixels around it. You have to see it from afar to begin to understand what you're looking at. But here's the challenge. When it comes to your life, if it was a movie, you're the main character. You're in every scene. You ever notice that? The camera follows you everywhere you go. And so you're always the center of attention of your story. And so oftentimes it's hard to see what is going on because you're so close to it. But more importantly, I think for a lot of people, God looks pixelated. And we, we go to God and we try to explore who he is, but we're not quite sure on a number of things. Like, God, how come you don't answer certain prayers? It seems like you should. It seems like it would make sense, but you don't. And I don't know what to make of that. God, why did you allow this thing to happen in my life? I don't think you should have. You should have stopped it. You should have intervened. Why, why did you allow that? Or why do you allow evil? It, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. God, what do you think of me? You know, what, what is your reaction to me? We have all these questions and, and God often looks pixelated. And you might go, okay, well, I want to solve this. I don't want God to look pixelated. So I know how to solve it. I'm just going to read my Bible and it'll clear everything up. So you get into Genesis and you start going. You're like, this is going to be great. And it doesn't take long before you run into something and you go, what? What is that? I don't know what to make of that. This is bizarre. It's confusing. And I talk to people all the time that have crazy questions about the Old Testament. What is this? And how do you make sense out of it? And what is going on here? And so you might have tried to stop looking at the thing pixelated. And as you read the Bible, it gets more pixelated. And maybe you're going, yeah, that's been my story. Let me give you just, I'm a pastor, okay? And so I'll tell you, I have crazy things that I think are in the Old Testament that I'm like, what is going on? with this story. I'll just give you a few examples that I wonder about, and I'd love to sit down with Jesus and go, just go ahead and explain to me what was going on with this one. For example, you have a leader in the Old Testament uh, named Samson. Samson is a guy that literally, it tells us numerous times, has the Spirit of God inside of him. He is leading God's people through God's Spirit. But Samson does some interesting things with the Spirit of God. He sleeps with prostitutes, seems to be no big deal. He goes and kills people just whenever he wants. In fact, he loses a bet. And so to pay for the bet, he just goes out and kills a bunch of guys and takes their stuff and pays his debt. And you're going, 
That's kind of strange. And you're going, what's this a picture of? Uh, there's a story about Samson in the Bible where he takes a jawbone and kills a bunch of dudes with a jawbone. Now, let me give you the four action steps for your life from Samson. You know, it's like, what, what does that mean for me today? Like, what am I supposed to do with that story? What are, what are the takeaways from me and Samson? Or let me give you another example. There's a prophet in the Old Testament. He's not really listening to God. And so God decides he's going to speak to him through a talking donkey. You've heard this story before, right? No, but the one I'm telling you is in the Bible. And, and there's a talking donkey that talks to him. And you're going, wait a minute, that, that's not the Bible. That's Shrek. I, I know that movie. It's Shrek. No, that's in the Bible. And so you got to go, is that literal? Is it metaphor? Is it just a crazy story? What do we do? Does God still talk to, you know, through us, through donkeys? Like, what are we supposed to do? Now, you might go, Jeremy, you're picking random stories here. That's not really consistent. Okay, let me give you a, a really predominant figure, King David. King David plays a central role in the Old Testament. Do you know there's a story in the Old Testament about David? And, and before he can marry his wife, uh, he has to get something first. And what he has to get are 200 foreskins. Let me show you a picture of that. I'm just kidding. Uh, you should see your faces. Woo, church is fun today. Uh, no, no picture on that one. 200 foreskins. I don't know about you, but 100 sounds enough to me, but whatever, it needs a 200. Now, if you have no idea what that's a reference to, ask your neighbor after service, and I guarantee you'll have a great conversation, okay? So you see these stories, and you're like, what do we do with these stories? What is the point? I don't understand it. It looks pixelated. And so what we're going to do in this series for six weeks, we're going to look at Old Testament stories, and then I'm going to show you what the New Testament writers do with it. How these stories are not random, they actually show us Jesus. And some of these are going to go, I have never had that thought before, I have never seen that before. And you may go, why, why are you trying to do this? Why are you trying to make the Old Testament make sense with Jesus? Well, that's because that's the way Jesus read the Old Testament. Now, you may not know this, you may never have thought about it, but when it came to how Jesus read the Scriptures, what was his method? What was his value statement? How did he process it? Uh, let me show you how he thought of it. And this comes when he is chastising the religious leaders of his day for doing it wrong. And here's the reality, what you realize. We do what they did a lot of the time. And I think Jesus would go, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Do, do this other thing. So here's what Jesus says about reading the Old Testament in John chapter 5. He's talking to religious leaders. You study the scriptures, the Old Testament, diligently. Because you think that in them, you have eternal life. That in these scriptures, you're going to find eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Hey, all that Old Testament, it's about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. This is a profound thought Jesus is making here. He's saying, look, religious leaders, you are trying to read the Old Testament because you think you're going to have life in it. You won't. You won't have life in it. You'll have life in me. But what you don't realize is that the Old Testament is pointing you to me. Now, the reality today is we can read the Bible because we think that in the Bible, we have life. You don't have life in the Bible. You have life in Jesus. The Bible will point you to Jesus. So if you want to understand, how do I properly understand the Bible? How do I read the Bible? You read it to see Jesus and find your life in Jesus, not in, oh, this is the Bible, this is my life. No, your life is in Jesus. And Jesus makes us so clear, and he explains how he reads it and invites us to do the same. This is why Jesus referred to the religious leaders of his day as blind guides, because they could not see how these stories pointed 
to him. He's like, oh, you, you blind guides. Well, the reality is we, we struggle with this today. I, I know a lot of Christians are like, oh, I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship the Bible. I'm going to find my value, my life in the Bible. It's like, okay, but you know who the Bible is pointing you to, right? The, the whole Bible is pointing you to Jesus. And if we fail to see Jesus, we're, we're missing out on something. And that's what happens when you take a step back and, you, and it's not pixelated anymore. So here's a question I'd encourage you, and you can write this down in your journals. Just a great question whenever you read the Bible. So not just today, but when you are reading the Bible, here's a great question to ask. What does this passage reveal to me about Jesus? Wherever in the Bible you are, just ask that question. What does this passage reveal to me about Jesus? Now you may go, this passage reveals nothing about Jesus. Now I would say, keep looking, because it does. Because Jesus himself said that all of it testifies to him. So if that's true, that's our starting point. Okay, what is this passage I'm reading? Explain to me about what does it reveal to me about Jesus? And as you work through that, I believe, as Jesus was explaining here, you'll start to see the point of these stories and it won't look pixelated anymore. All right, that's the setup. Now here's the first one we're gonna get to. Uh, the one we're looking at today is Genesis 11. It's called the, the story of the Tower of Babel. You may have heard this, it's a, it's a famous story, uh, but it's a weird one. And you may go, what on earth is this one about? I, I would like to, to show you today. So we're gonna go Genesis 11, begin reading in verse one. If you've got your, your Bible with you, and hopefully you do, you can read along with us. Here's what it says. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. So just think about that. There is one language, Everybody speaks. It's hard for us to imagine because today we have more than 6,500 languages that are spoken throughout the world. But in this time, there's just one. So mentally go there. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and, and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so that's a setup. It's a weird, it's a weird story. Uh, they they want to build this giant city, this giant tower, and yet God is not going to like this. And you might wonder, what's, what's the big deal? Why is this a problem? Well, look at the motivations, that, that the reason why they want to do this. We, we just read it. There two motivations. Number one, they want to make a name for themselves. We want to build ourselves a great city and a great tower, and people will, will acknowledge us for what we have created. Second, they want to avoid being scattered. We don't want to be spread out. We want to all be together, and that way, that, you know, we can just be, you know, close and, and, and next to one another. Now, you may go, okay, well, you know, maybe making names not great, but what, what's the big deal with this? Why would God not be okay with this? Okay, we're in Genesis 11. We already know in the first nine chapters of the Bible, this isn't what God wants them to do. If you read the opening pages of Scripture, God has some basic instructions. We're talking like 101 stuff of here's what I want you to do as you follow me. You see this beginning in the garden. God tells Adam, as he's kind of talking to Adam on behalf of mankind, a very simple instruction. Uh, this is Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, uh, said to Adam about mankind, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Adam's like, what am I supposed to do? I'm, I'm bored, God. What, what's the point of all this? Fill the earth. Go spread out. Enjoy my creation. Be a part of it. Uh, go and do all of this. If you keep reading, it doesn't go well early on in the story. God has to bring a flood. He hits reset on the whole creation thing. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a rocky beginning uh, to the whole, the whole, you know, human project with God. Uh, but then he gets to a guy named Noah. And Noah is, is kind of resetting uh, creation after the flood. So God returns to Noah with this very same message. Let me show you Genesis 9, verse 1. 
says to Noah, And God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? It's the same message he said to Adam. Now with Noah, he's going, I need to revisit this. Because now it matters to Noah. Noah's the guy. Says it again later in that chapter, verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. This is a very basic stuff, okay? This is in chapter 9. Two chapters later, what are they doing? The opposite of that. We don't want to fill the earth. We don't want to multiply upon it. We want to be together in a city, make a great name for ourselves, and build a tower up to the heavens. And God's like, that is not what I asked you to do. So God decides he's going to interject. Uh, Genesis 11, verse 5 continues. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. I love that phrase because it implies God's just like, let's go check in on them. Let's just go, let's go see what, what they're up to. The Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Why is God concerned? Evidently, because it's going to work. What they're doing is working. This is, again, a bizarre story. Like, wait, this is going to work? Yeah, he's concerned about it. So verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. What? Why is God doing this? What is the point? That's a weird story. Now, whenever I read a story like that, I try to imagine myself in the story. What would it feel like to be one of these guys and, and really try to put myself there? And you got to imagine, they all have one language. Imagine the unity that these, these people feel. They, they know everybody. They've grown up together. Uh, they're living a long time at this point. You know, it's like they know everyone and they're getting work done. They, they, they're succeeding. They are building this city. They're building this tower. It's going well. And so one day they're expecting you know, everything to work as it normally does, but one day it doesn't. And I imagine there's a guy out there and he's, he's working and he's looking for his hammer. Can't find his hammer. And so he looks over and he sees Bob has it. So he's like, all right, I'll ask Bob. Hey, Bob, can, can you bring me my hammer? And Bob looks at him and says, no comprende, senor. I'm, I'm sorry, what did you say, Bob? Like the hammer. And Bob just gives him this confused look. And he's like, that was weird. I don't know what's gotten into Bob. So he looks over and sees his friend Gary. Hey, Gary. Can you ask Bob to give me the hammer? He's acting super weird. And Gary leans over and says, Je ne comprends pas. Gary. So, and then he follows it with, ha, 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 ha. You know, it's like. <laughs> what, what's happening? What are, you, what are you guys saying? And all of a sudden you have no ability to communicate with the people that you have always communicated with, your people. You can't even talk. There's no Rosetta Stone to log in on your computer and go, hold on a second, let me figure out what Gary was saying to me. I don't know what the heck that was. You don't know. So they all are scattered in one moment. And that is such a bizarre experience. And we have it in the opening pages of Scripture. You're going, what's the point of this? This is kind of weird. Well, let's revisit what were the motivations and you begin to see what's going on here, okay? So here are the two motivations. To make a name, what is that? It's pride. Uh, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Everyone will look at what we have built, what we have done. Let's make a name for ourselves. God's like, yeah, I'm not really, not really into that. And then they want to avoid being scattered. That's fear. 
What if we have to spread out? What if we get separated? What if, you know, we don't want to be, let's just all be together because there, there's safety there, there's security there, there's comfort there. So we don't want to be spread out. And so God goes, all right, well, we're going to deal with this. Now, when we read the story of the Tower of Babel, most of us read it as divine punishment from God. That God is so mad at what they're doing, he comes down, he shuts that party down and, and spreads everybody out. Let me suggest an alternative understanding. I don't think this is a punishment from God. I think God, as a loving father, is watching his creation get self-absorbed. He's watching his creation uh, just start to lose focus of who he is and what he's doing and what he's asking to do. And as a loving father, he is meeting them in that place and gently nudging them forward and going, hey, you can do this. Like you, you can follow what I asked you to do. You don't need to be self-absorbed. I, I, I'll help you with it. And to give you just an image to consider, instead of the, oh, God is mad and he's punishing them, I wanna give you another image to, to use to process God's point of view of this story. So we know what they're doing, but here's what I would like to suggest. I think God feels toward them. It probably looks a little bit like this. Check this out. What's the problem? <laughs> You can't lift that up? No! Oh, come back and try again. You're almost to the sink. I can't do it. Oh. I can't do it. That looks like it's very heavy. I think you can do it though, Kirsten. I think you can lift it up to the sink and you can help clear the table. I think you can do it. Your big hammy couldn't do it, but you could do it. Oh. Oh. You want to try again? Maybe you take your thumb out of your mouth and move your lovey and you can do it all. Okay, let's go. Put it in the sink. So heavy. God's looking at him going, really guys, you can't spread out. You, you can't just trust me that, that I made all of this and you can't go, uh, okay, uh, I'll meet you here. I'll, I'll help you. You're, you're absorbed with your pride and your fear and, and he meets him there. Now, is that just a weird, random story in the Old Testament? No. It is amazing to see what the New Testament writers do with this. I want to show you three examples. There's tons, but I want to show you three examples that reference back to this story that will help you take a step back and go, oh, I see it now. I see how this helps us understand Jesus. You can think of these in three ways. At the death of Jesus, after the death of Jesus, and at the return of Jesus, okay? All three of those moments Harken back to Babel. Let me show you these. This is fascinating. When you, when you listen to Jesus talk about his own death, that when he's setting everyone up going, here's what's about to happen, notice the wording that he uses with Babel in mind. Here's what he says in John chapter 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, he's referencing the cross, will draw all people to myself. You want to look at a tower? You want to you make a name for yourself? I'll show you what everyone's going to be looking at. When I am on the cross, I will be lifted up and all people will be drawn in to me. 
See, Jesus at the cross will gather what has been scattered. And all of this will come at that moment to the cross, which is why when you're trying to figure out what does Jesus look like? What does God look like? Think about Jesus on the cross. It's the clearest, most focused picture of God we have. And Jesus says, all people will be drawn to this moment, to this view. This is how it makes sense, which means we will not be drawn to any tower of our own creation. You can spend your entire life building a tower, trying to make a name for yourself, and it will not last. Only this will last. You want to go, oh, people will remember me, and I'm going oh, to be talked about in this and that. No, no, no. Jesus is going to draw all men to himself, all people to himself at the cross. That is the only tower that will last. Now let me show you after his death. So he does that. He goes to the cross. He draws creation together. Uh, and then you have the beginning of the early church. And so you have these Christians trying to figure out what do we do now? How does this work? And there is a Jewish festival called Pentecost. It was a harvest festival. It was a, a festival that people would make a pilgrimage to. So at, at Pentecost around Jerusalem, you have all these people from all different regions who speak different languages coming in for this Jewish celebration. And at this day of Pentecost, at this celebration, the Holy Spirit shows up in new ways. And this is often called the birth of the church because the Holy Spirit shows up and it gets crazy. But again, read this with Babel in mind. Let me show you. Uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is an Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the reverse babel. At Babel, God takes their languages and he spreads it out. He changes it. They can't understand each other. At Pentecost, God does the reverse. All of a sudden, they're talking in their language and 10 other languages can understand them. They're going, yeah, I, I get it. I, I, how is he doing that? How is he speaking in my language? And the disciples are going, how am I doing this? How am I, I'm, not, I'm just speaking my language. They don't understand what's happening. You see, at Babel, God had to confuse languages to spread them out. At Pentecost, God is merging languages to bring them all in to what is happening now. He's bringing all these languages together. People are going, how can I understand you? How can I hear you? It is the bookend moment of the Tower of Babel. It's incredible to see, oh, God is continuing, completing this story. And then you get to at the return of Jesus. And when, when the apostle John gets this image, I want you to notice how John describes it. This is in, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. All creation, all languages, all 6,500 plus are standing before the Lamb. It is the culmination of Babel. You see, God had scattered all of his creation so that ultimately he could draw all his creation back to him at the cross. And so you could say it this way, the cross focuses God's goodness over the blur of pride and fear. See, pride and fear will always blur your vision. It'll always cause life to look pixelated to you because you will not see the bigger story. But the cross is that moment you focus your gaze to something beyond and go, oh, now I see it. Now I get it. Now I understand what I'm missing. 
And so God scatters them and then he gathers all of creation, all languages, back to himself at the cross. So what do pride and fear have in common? They're both the result of ignoring God. When you are self-focused, self-absorbed, you start to lose focus on God. And often pride and fear are the result. So let me ask you just really practically about these. First, how are you doing with pride in your life? How, how are you doing? I would suggest that all of us, myself included, struggle with pride. Here's the hard part about pride. You can't see pride in a mirror. You can't see pride, just like you can't see greed in a mirror. Nobody thinks I'm proud. Nobody thinks I'm greedy. And so even as I say that, you're like, I don't think this applies to me. This is not. And in fact, if you're thinking of someone else going, I hope that person is listening to this sermon right now because they need that. It's about you. You're the person that needs to go, oh, wait, I might have an issue with this, especially if you don't think you do. Uh, if you've ever struggled with your prayer life, you've got pride. Because what, what is that? Well, I don't need to pray. I don't need to invite God saying, I'll just, I'll just take care of it. I got it on my own. I don't need to invite God's spirit to do something. I can handle it all by myself. And pride is like a disease that, that affects everyone else around. It makes everyone else sick except the person that has it. The person that has it thinks, oh, I'm great. I don't have anything. And everyone around you is sick of it. And yet you can't see it. Pride is that thing that caused Satan to turn on God. Because he thought, you know, why, why would I worship you? I could do this. I'm, I'm pretty awesome myself. I could just focus on me. And it's the same thing we battle with today. We see it in the opening pages of Scripture. And yet... God is calling us beyond it, going, you don't have to be defined by your pride. And pride leads to fear. Because when you are just absorbed in what you can do, you'll know your limitations. You'll know, I don't think I can make this happen. And all of a sudden, fear begins to set in because you're only looking about what you can do, not what God can do, not what Jesus can do. So how are you doing with fear in your life right now? Fear is that sense of when you have the butterflies in your stomach. You're going, oh, I'm out of my comfort zone here. Oh, I don't know, I don't like this feeling. And most of us, we run from the butterflies. We avoid the butterflies. We, we squish it down and go, I don't want to deal with any of those. I remember one time someone telling me, you know what? You need to make friends with the butterflies. You need to learn to say, you know what? I like the butterflies. Because that's the moment when I'm alive. When I'm pushing myself. When I'm outside of my comfort zone. When, when something new is happening and you feel the butterflies in your stomach. Let me ask you practically. When's the last time you did something for God that made you nervous? Where you went, I, I don't know how this one's going to end. And, and Jesus, if you don't show up here, I'm going to be in trouble. I think this is why most of us are, are not more generous with our finances. Because we're afraid. Well, if I gave more, if I gave sacrificially, if I pushed myself, how would I pay that bill? How would I pay that? What if something comes up? And we live in fear and we don't trust God. That's why a lot of us won't ever share our faith with someone else. We won't tell them about what Jesus has done for us because I don't know what they'll react I don't know what they'll say. We live in fear. What if instead you say, you know what? I'm gonna make friends with the butterflies. I'm just gonna decide, hey, I, I, wanna, I wanna be connected to what God is doing, those spiritual butterflies. Because the Holy Spirit will nudge you and prompt you and, and gently push you along to areas you don't think you can do. When you have given up and going, it's too heavy, I can't lift it. Yes, you can. Come on, you, you can do something you don't think is possible because God is with you. And yet pride and fear get us just self-absorbed in our own little worlds, our own little towers that we're building, and we miss what God is doing. I began by sharing a story about taking our kids to the beach. I want to close with an example from that trip. 
So when we took our kids there, there this was two years ago, so our oldest uh, was seven at the time. So our oldest two boys were able to, to handle the waves fairly well, and our daughter was able to, to do it as well. But our four-year-old, who was then a two-year-old, uh, was just too little. And so when he got out into the water, it started rolling them around and tossing them in. And, and he quickly developed a, a, a severe fear of the ocean. And so after this, what he would do is he would only stand behind me. And so the other kids are out playing, running around, and he's literally locked onto me because he's so fearful of the water. And it became so funny that he just would stand there for so long that um, further back on the beach, my wife Michelle took a photo of us because she just thought it looked funny. I wanna show you this photo. So here's us at the beach. And you may notice a little life jacket right behind me. This is our two-year-old time. And, and so as I look at this photo, here's what I realize: You have all of this ocean and then you have fear. Now, I don't fault him for this. He was two, he's little. Uh, it, it is a scary thing and he's, he's holding on to dad, that, that's fine. But if this is what happens to you as an adult, as you follow Jesus, you're missing something. Because as I look at this, I go, look, I mean, and again, you know the ocean, it goes out as far as you can see. It goes each direction as far as you can see. This is incredible. And Jesus is going, go explore it, go see what I have made, it's incredible. And fear goes, no, I'm just gonna stand right behind you. I'm just gonna hold on, I don't wanna do it. He can't even see the ocean. He's not looking, he's not, I mean, he doesn't want to. And that's cute when you're two at the beach, but it's sad when as an adult, this is how we try to follow God. Oh God, I, I just can't see it. I don't wanna see it. It just looks pixelated to me. So I'm just gonna hold up here. And I think Jesus is going, I've got an incredible adventure, but you gotta look at me. You gotta stop looking at yourself. You gotta stop being so self-absorbed in your pride and in your fear. And, and instead, why don't you look around? And when you begin to see Jesus like this, you realize it's not pixelated, that he is inviting you to see him on the cross. And that is what will bring into focus anything that's blurred by your pride and your fear. And this is how you live the adventure that Jesus has wired you for. Let's pray together. Well, God, give us the vision to see you. Give us the ability, not just as we study a story like the Tower of Babel, but as we look at how fear and pride have blurred our own lives, blurred our own vision, would you give us the ability to see you, to see beyond it, to realize what fear and pride does to us and that you as a loving father will meet us there and you will gently encourage us forward. You will tell us that we're, we're being a little bit ridiculous and that we, we can actually handle what you have asked us to do. So God, would you give us that boldness, give us that spirit of power to live with the butterflies, to make friends with them, to, to step out in our faith in such ways that would make us nervous, that we know that if you don't show up, it's gonna be a problem for us, but it is in that reliance where we find you in some of the most profound ways. God, may we be a church, may we be a community de defined by our vision of you in that way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.